the, the hunger stats you're looking at today are going to pale in comparison to tomorrow because of climate change. That's Keely Wax, the Vice President of Communications and Impact at Zoom, who's helping to reduce food waste by creating more efficient supply chains. It's, um, it's, a, it's a long-term play, but it's the way you have to be thinking about these systems. Our, our, um, our CEO likes to talk about um, systems designing and building a company smart from the start in being a systems thinker, right? So, you know, um, and the reason he feels compelled to do that is because of climate change and the, and the urgency around that problem. So he's like, you know, Keely, we didn't. Amazon was built over 25 years. We don't have the luxury of that. What does the future of leadership look like in the food industry? Find out and listen to this episode of the Leaders Podcast, your number one source for impact leaders harnessing capitalism to help sustain the planet, people, and profits. Five, four, three, two, and one. And welcome, everyone, to the Releaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Alongside us today, joining us from Oakland, California, is Keely Wax, the Vice President of Communications and Impact at Zoom, that's developing technology for a larger and smarter sustainable food system. Keely, thanks for coming on the show today. Hey, Kevin. So really, really honored to be here. You know, I it's an honor to have you here, Keely, because uh, when I was doing research for uh, this podcast, this company, I was like, man, this is a solution that can exponentially you know, solve some of the world's uh, global food supply and distribution problems. Um, so before we kind of get into all the, the, uh, the problematic stuff, all the, the process stuff, would you mind telling myself and your audience a little bit of your background, you know, your upbringing, your story, your childhood, and why you're so invested into a company like this? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, that's a big question. Um, I'm humbled by the question. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I, I feel really lucky. I feel super fortunate to be able to do something that I love to do and for a company that I love to do it for and, and to be able to go to work every day and say, we're trying to solve something big and to be able to go to work every day and inspire a team across the organization to help address a really big problem, which is climate change. And we're doing that through food waste. Um, how do we, you know, how do we, it's an, it's an amazing business actually. So food waste actually, if it was its own country would be the third largest emitter of carbon emissions in the world hmm. after China and the U S so, you know, food waste is problematic in a lot of ways, a lot of ways, but it's also a huge lever for addressing climate change. And so, you know, our, 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 um, our founder, um, is a brilliant guy and he has this really elegant, way of looking at the world, which he thinks that the food system, supply and demand are out of balance and that we overproduce because we know there's a bunch of waste in the system. So that if we could actually create demand signals and better connect from demand all the way down to supply um, using technology, that we would help be able to address some, if not all of the, the waste that goes into, into, the, into the food system. And the food system is wasteful in two ways, right? It's, it's both the food that's produced and never consumed, but it's also the packaging um, the way it's transported. Um, and so we are looking at all these amazing technological solutions to help address that. Um, and you know, what brought me here was I, I actually, um, I didn't study food. Um, I didn't study, uh, tech. I just kind of kept learning and followed passion. And, and so it, it led my, it led me to graduate school where I studied environmental economics and then um, it led me that that led me into actually working in clean energy, which I did for more than a decade. I was really, really lucky to be at the forefront of that, that movement. And then the food industry was the next really interesting channel, um, and, and challenge for me. So, you know, I'm, I'm super lucky and, uh, I'm having a blast. 
Uh, well, we're super happy to have you on the show, Keely. And uh, you made a couple of good points there. One, your founder, you know, he believes in this food system can be changed to really have an impact. Uh, is, is capitalism a system? Is society a system that can be changed and updated and evolved? And, you know, maybe what are your thoughts on that uh, since you've been uh, working at Zoom? Yeah, it's funny. We, he and I were actually just talking about this the other day. And look, I think capitalism as a system works, um, but it needs checks and balances. And um, it's here to stay. I, I don't think we're going to see a world without capitalism, at least not for a long, long time. But I think what we are seeing is capitalism evolving. And, um, you know, it takes probably slower than many of us would like. But capitalism is moving from a system that was primarily driven by one metric, right, which is profitability, um, making money. And now we're seeing a system that's evolving to account for some of those other really important metrics, whether they're human, social, uh, or environmental. And, and we're starting to see um, what started probably 20, 25 years ago, kind of in corporate America, we're starting to really see that um ground itself in practical ways, right? So um, one of the, and an example of this is like one of the largest growth areas in investing is in, uh, is in ESG, right? Environmental social governments. And um, big, large amounts of funds are starting to be created to invest in companies like ours and others that are not just looking at the financial rewards or financial um, outcomes of a company, but they're also looking at some of these other benefits. And I think what's exciting about that is, you know, at the nascent stages, so companies are are investors, funds, uh, you know, family foundations, others are saying, look, we want to, we want to put money into companies that we think are going to be successful financially, but that are also doing these other things. But what's starting to happen now is we're starting to get a greater link between those environmental and social outcomes and profitability. And, and so whereas, whereas before it was kind of a feel good investment strategy, we said, look, you know, there's a big trend here. It feels good for us to be making some investments. Let's do the bare minimum to make sure that these organizations are actually getting the environmental and social benefits that we, that, 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 that are stated in their, and their, in their purpose to now actually linking performance across those different categories in ways that we haven't seen before. And you can see a day where um, not only will there be high correlation between um, profitability and those environmental and social um, outcomes, but we're going we're gonna to start to see um, companies, investment firms, others, really looking to those environmental and social um, metrics as the lead over profitability, I think. It's going to take time, but I think we're starting to see that. Well, it's, it's good to hear. Uh, what, I, what, I, what I find so interesting about Zoom is... Uh, not even just the philanthropic uh, idea of it. Obviously, the the packaging is is uh, sustainable now. I saw it was made out of sugarcane. Um, yeah. But the bigger issue I want to talk about today is uh, distribution uh, and demand. So, uh, like a lot of problems, I've found in the plastic problem is you know great we can make all these recyclable materials. We can put yeah. them in all these packages. But if that material gets recycled. And then I, as a consumer, throw it back into the landfill. It's a waste. And so the problem with, um, you know, uh, apparel, a uh, problem with plastics now become is like, yeah. how do we create a more efficient uh, supply chain and supply network? So I was hoping, you know, you could explain with our audience maybe a little bit more about Zoom, how it's using food analytics um, to create a more efficient uh, supply chain for the, for the end user. Yeah, sure. I mean, what you're really describing is what we call a circular economy. Okay. 
right? So you have um, reuse and or repurposing of products that stay in a circular economy. So an example of that would be look at packaging. So our packaging business, we're using ag waste. Okay, so historically what you would have is a farmer would go out and grow, they would have the, the products they would sell, and then they would have a bunch of ag waste coming out of it. A really example of that is sugarcane, as you talked about earlier, right? So the way sugarcane is produced is you cut, it's a big stalk, almost like, like corn, they juice out, and that's where sugar comes from. And then they throw this massive stalk into the into either a landfill or back into their farm, and it lets off methane, methane gas, etc. And, and farmers aren't trying to they're not trying to be. It's not a it's not like they're intentionally trying to be bad. It's just that that's the intent. The intent of their growth was to create sugarcane, not to use the stock. So we're like, wait a minute, all that energy, all that water, all the carbon emissions that were used to grow that sugarcane, we could actually use that and do something with it. So we're taking that stock and actually producing molded fiber um, packaging, right? So, you know, kind of like what you'd see like in a bowl at Chipotle, that's molded fiber. Um, it's, it's everywhere. Um, we can actually take that ag waste and make really high performing and cost effective molded fiber products. So, you're taking something that would normally be waste and you're re-entering it and reusing it into the system. Okay. Now where that gets really exciting is imagine if we could do that for other types of um, other products or imagine that that sugar company uses that same molded fiber for their packaging. Right? So you, you have a full system where the sugar cane is used to grow the sugar. You're using the sugar cane fiber, fibrous stock, to make the packaging, the packaging comes back, it's composted in a, some type of municipal system, comes right back in, it's used to uh, create soil and compost that then goes to grow the sugarcane again. So you have this perfectly closed loop system and we need more systems like that. Um, and, and, you know, and they're starting to emerge. There's a really cool foundation called the Ellen, Ellen MacArthur Foundation that specializes in this. Um, it's obviously a conversation that's a little more advanced in Europe and some other economies, but the U.S. is starting to pick up on this. And so, you know, that's just one of the business um, business units that we're looking at. But ultimately, our whole goal is to create this circular economy across the food system, um, across very different types of, of elements and categories of the food system. So whether it's transportation, whether it's the food production itself, whether it's packaging, that's what we're that's what we're trying to accomplish. So let's take those different types and let's maybe break them down. I'm like really interested yeah. in this. Uh, yeah. What about like uh, a, like a, a retail like a, a restaurant? How are you working with them to improve their efficiency and, and thus decrease their food waste? Yeah. So it's um, there's a lot of technologies that are helping in kitchen re- remove food waste. And, and those are really exciting. What we're actually doing is more aggregated. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to take we're trying to provide them with solutions um, that helps us aggregate all that demand. So right now, one of the biggest problems is that all this food demand is super disaggregated, right? So you've got a bunch of different grocery stores, a bunch of different restaurants, and there's all this disaggregated information that's being shared between the farmer, distributor, or food distributors, and, and ultimately the end user, whether that's a consumer or a restaurant or a, or a grocery store. And so what we're trying to do is give um, food members of the food supply chain, um, we're trying to aggregate that information by giving them tech solutions that gives us data, right? So we call it demand signals, right? So what we try to do is say, okay, look, we know you have a restaurant. We know you're trying to do food delivery. We're going to try to provide you with a more efficient way of delivering your food. And in in return, we're going to take that data, that aggregated data, and try to create a data lake so we know Oh, actually, you know what? The Bay Area needs 400,000 tomatoes on any given day. And then work directly with farmers to help create real-time supply 
so that we cut out a lot of that inefficiency that happens throughout the supply chain. That's the really, that's the kind of the large long-term vision for us. Mm. So in the short term, you know, we're, we're addressing uh, sustainability issues around packaging. We're addressing them in some of the transportation stuff we're doing around batteries, which is really interesting. And then we're also, we're also trying to address this issue around food delivery and food delivery is interesting because there's not a direct right now. We don't have a direct solution that actually has a sustainable benefit, but we know that if we can get enough information and data around food delivery, we could have a huge aggregated impact as I just described. Um, and that's really fun and interesting, but it requires a ton of patience and it requires a ton of discipline because we want to have the immediate effect, which is what's exciting about our packaging business. But this larger, big strategy is something that requires us to continue to, hammer away at every day and provide real-time solutions for our customers. Um, you know, it's really interesting is that like you ask what, like, what does leadership look like? And for us, you know, we, we, we don't really, we ourselves are an enabler. Like what we're, what we're saying is food companies across the supply chain, let's enable you to make great decisions for your business, but also for the planet or socially, whatever, whatever the outcome is you're looking for, you're really the champions of this. We're nothing more than a tech enabler to help you accomplish your goals. And, you know, sometimes it's taking that step back and, um, you know, in a humble way and providing those options for restaurants, for grocery stores, for food companies, instead of us being kind of the you know, ones that are getting a credit for actually accomplishing those goals, it's really up to them. It's really up to those companies. We just have to provide them with a technology that's scalable and cost-effective and then let them really do the rest. Yeah, well, I, I wouldn't sell yourself short there, Keely. I mean, I think tech companies are, like you just said, cost-efficient. And so, you know, a company like yours, you're taking that long-term approach. It's very difficult. That's what I would consider, you know, being a leader in this space is you're, you're knowingly going in with an intentional uh, idea to one, create impact and two, say, Hey, you know, this is going to take a long time to do. And we're not about these short, these short-term profits. Um, but it's interesting though. So do you think that's something that, uh, a lot of business owners are struggling with in, ter- in terms of yeah. not going towards that impact or sustainable route is just the immediate returns or just the, the, the discipline maybe, what, what do you think it is? Well, that's what's so interesting about food, right? Is that like, okay, so we talked to, we talked about food waste, right? So food waste is a $990 billion problem globally, right? Again, it's the third largest emitter of carbon emissions. So it's like in aggregate, it's a humongous problem, right? But then when you go and you talk to the individual actors in the, the food system, they're all, they're all like real margin thin, right? They're all volume players. They have really low margins. So if you go to them and said, Hey, you need to save the world by using sustainable packaging or by being more efficient in your distribution, but it's going to cost you 30% more, you're putting them in a pretty bad situation, right? So they, they don't have that, that, right. that margin to play with. So it, it really is up to us us tech companies, us, you know, other types of companies to be able to like really drive, um, scale and efficiencies for them so that they don't have to make that trade-off decision, right? Like not everyone is fortunate enough to be a whole foods where they're selling to people that, you know, can afford the extra cost of organic food or sustainable packaging. If we're going to really address this problem, it needs to be done at scale and it needs to be available to everyone. And that means we have to make it available to all businesses regardless of their margins. So you ask this question around capitalism, like, you know, businesses have to be profitable in order to survive. That's just the reality of it. 
And so what we want to do is um, never, we, we want to help companies avoid having to make that trade-off, right? We want to give them cost-effective, high-performing solutions that is a no-brainer for them to do because it is good for the environment. You know, and there's other variables at play here. I mean, consumers are, are obviously starting to demand some of this and, and governments are starting to regulate it. So, you know, the food companies are caught in this really tough situation where they're being told what to do. They're trying to follow demand and being and loyal to their own to their own customers. Um, but they, they don't always have the solutions readily available to actually address it without having serious repercussions to their business. So, you know, that's where companies like Zoom and others come in. And, and I think we can play a really important role. I want to think like a, in a long-term perspective here, uh, because I keep throwing around the term exponential, and exponential to mean to me means how tech is emerging. Uh, more, more is law. It's either going to uh, double in in efficiency or have your costs. And so, in a futuristic world, and from like why I think this is so exciting, Keely, because you know, being a young adult, we're ordering on Uber Eats, we're ordering on Postmates. Uh, we're, there are pop up taco shops that can sell me something and have it delivered and it's fresh and it's ready to go you know if I need it in seconds I don't know if it's because I'm lazy I don't know if it's because I grew up with it or if it's you know hey I just don't want to move but there this is where you know uh, people my generation see food food going and restaurants going Um, could you uh, maybe explain the idea of your food carts and your food trucks um, that uh, Zoom is is thinking about rolling out and and how they are implementing uh, uh, social uh, principles, as well as the um, the transfer the transformation, the longevity of a business solution like this. Sure. Yeah. So, um, so remember I was talking earlier about this, like the long tail demand side of things, and us getting enough demand information to help drive better supply chain decisions down the supply chain. So, um, our, our unique approach is using these mobile kitchens. So, um, you know, don't sell yourself short, Kevin, like you're not lazy, you're, you're a convenient seeker, like every human on the planet, right? Like the, there's one thing I can say with hundred percent conviction, um, we are convenient seekers, right? Like all humans do that, whether you're a millennial, a Gen Z or a Gen X or older, um, or a boomer, like we all do, you know? And, and, and so, you know, food delivery is here to stay. The economics of it right now are, are wonky. Um, you know, it's being, uh, subsidized in large part by some big companies, but, but, um, but it's here to stay. And, and it's, you know, look, it's a pretty amazing thing. You know, I can order a burrito from my favorite shop here in Oakland and have it delivered pretty quickly. Um, I will say though, that it's the convenience is not matched by the food experience today, right? So most likely you're going to get food delivered and it's not nearly going to be as great as an experience as you would have in a restaurant, right? It's probably going to be a little colder. I call it sweaty. You know, your food's a little sweaty. It's in the box. It's like, you know, starting to, yeah, they're starting to get like some condensation and like the burritos kind of push to one corner of the box. And, and so, you know, what, so our packaging strategy is, is, is informed by that. So we want to create packaging that helps um, food delivery, it created more enhanced hospitality experience. An example of that is we just announced with Pizza Hut, this new round box. I don't know if you saw that. Um, the, the grids that you can cut the box. Yeah. 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 It's a grid you can cut through, but then it's also the pizza is actually elevated so that like the grease drops through. Uh, There's all this like science and physics, physics and science behind kind of airflow. So the pizza stays warmer and crispier. It's just a better experience overall. So, so we can apply that to other types of foods as well. So packaging is trying to address that, but the the mobile kitchens is really interesting too, right? So, um, 
restaurants, as I said before, really, really kind of, um, they're, they're constrained by capital, right? And they have high risk, you know, restaurants fail all the time. So what we want to do is go to a restaurant owner and say, hey, look, we know using data, we know that there's, let's just say Kevin's meatball shop um, is based in, you're in San Diego, right? So let's just say there's a, we, we know there's a, uh, Kevin's uh, meatball shop is based in La Jolla, right? And you've got a lot of demand in La Jolla and you're able to service that sector uh, or that area pretty easily with delivery within a 30, ma- 30 minute range. But let's just say Zoom comes to you and says, hey, look, we actually know, um, Kevin, based on credit cards and uh, credit card data and other data, that there's a huge demand for your um, for your meatball sandwiches in um, in Chula Vista, and and but and you're like, well, that's great, but I I don't want to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars and time and risk to put a new restaurant out there. I don't really know. So we would come to you and say, hey, look, lease one of our mobile kitchens. You know, you can go on a month to month lease. We'll put a kitchen out there and we'll come every morning. We'll come to your store in La Jolla. We'll load up our mobile kitchen with all the right foods and we'll put that mobile kitchen in Chula Vista and we'll work with Uber Eats and DoorDash and Postmates and increase your delivery market by X amount. And then you're like, oh, and by the way, Carlsbad also has that demand. So now you have three working restaurants with zero capital X risk, right? And you're there immediately and you can test the markets. So that's super exciting for us. And, you know, we started this with our own pizza brand, Zoom Pizza. We paid our people a fair living wage, um, you know, because you can cut down a lot on the actual uh, overall labor, total amount of labor by doing this. Uh, But you can pay people better. And then again, for us, the bigger play is getting this data and understanding all the ingredients, all the inputs that go into it, so we can start aggregating this information. And, that, and that's a that's a long that's a long term play for us, but we think that um, that's really important, you know. And and so it doesn't have the immediate benefit of uh, the environmental return we necessarily see on some of our other um, some of our other businesses, but in aggregate, we think it will. But we also think we're really solving a big problem for restaurateurs. And you know, ultimately, we're food lovers. We started our you know our, our company in pizza. We love food. We know food has the power to make people's lives better and make the world better. And we want to make sure that food restaurateurs and others are successful. And it's pretty fun to see them be successful as a result. Uh, it's very rewarding. And you know, the last part of this is food delivery is not going anywhere. It's, it's a $35 billion business today. It's going to be a $365 billion business by 2030. It is here. Thanks to you and all the fine young millennials out there. Um, no, just kidding. I mean, we're all doing it. And, um, and so if we're going to be a food business and a business that's trying to drive sustainability and drive a better food system, we better be paying attention to what's happening in food delivery. And, um, you know, the U.S. is actually behind on this. Europe, India and China are like so far advanced. It's already taken off. So it's I think I've said it's like it's probably after the Green Revolution, it's probably the second biggest transformational thing in food over the last 100 years because it is changing the way it's changing the way we eat it's changing the way we socialize dude they're they're building houses now new apartments in san francisco and china and other places without kitchens right Hmm. so it is because of food delivery yeah so people don't want to cook anymore people just want to either take food out either you know prepared foods out of a grocery store or convenience store or or retail or another restaurant or they want to get it delivered and so it's just, it's, it's hard to get your head around how transformational it is. Like we're going to turn around in 10 years and be like, oh my God, what just happened? Right. I, I liken it to kind of like the Amazonification of retail, 
right? You're like, oh, here's this company they're selling books. Next thing you know, they like own retail, right? Right. And that's exactly what's going to happen in food. We, we, and 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 the good news is there's companies like Zoom and others that are saying, okay, hold on. We know this is transforming the food system. We know this is going to have you know major effects on restaurateurs and people. Let's try to start doing it the right way from the start. Yeah. Um, and that's the intent for us. See, yeah, exactly. And that's why I'm going back to the, the leadership things. I think you guys are, are you know, looking forward and, and, and ahead on this and saying, hey, look, you know, we produce enough food in this world to feed everybody, but it's just not being distributed properly. You know, how, yeah. how can we play our role in this, which I think is really interesting. But I like your meatball example, Keely. Let's stick on that example really quick. So okay. what else? What else can you do for me? If I was a meatball uh, restaurant, I mean, what about my beef intake, uh, where I'm getting my suppliers from? What about, I mean, I'm like, I make a you know mean uh, mean marinara sauce. I'm looking for my tomatoes. What about shrinkage? Do you do you track shrinkage um, from you know uh, geographically from a tomato supplier in Mexico versus one in Chula Vista? What are some other things that you could help you know uh, my business out with in, in terms of how to use the food analytics? Yeah, I mean, we're certainly not going to get in the business of telling what people should and should not eat. You know, there's a lot of people that say like to stop eating meat. I mean. Um, Clearly, there's a there's a case to be made for cl- addressing climate change through reduced meat um, production and intake. I'm just talking normal food and analytics, just like how do I? Yeah, how yeah. I, I mean, how can you help me? All of the above. I mean, um, what's cool is when we get the right amount of data and demand information, we can help farmers with the right type of technology. So imagine, imagine, okay. So imagine we have a um, like a precision farming system, right? So indoor growing. Right. And we're growing tomatoes. And right now that tomato grower is getting information from a bunch of different distributors. They're aggregating and saying, look, we, we need to grow 300,000 tomatoes this year. They're going to come in at different times. We don't know exactly when we, we have a general sense of when the demand is going to come in. Right. There may be more, more tomatoes eaten during the summer. Um, you know, the nice right. barata. I don't know. Right. Um, but they don't, they can't get specific. If we get enough data, aggregated data, we can actually go and say to a farmer at precision farming in a greenhouse and say, dude, we know that you're going to need 100,000 tomatoes on September 22nd. And we know exactly where they're going to go. So this is when you need to start the plant. This is how much water you're going to need, how much energy you're going to need, how many, Mm -hmm. how much nutrients and inputs you're going to get in. And it's going to be not just precision farming, it's going to be coupled with precision analytics and prediction, predictive Mm -hmm. analytics. Mm -hmm. And that is where it gets really interesting. So then we can help, to your point, really manage inventory, supply chains in ways that we never could before because the information has been disaggregated. And that gets super, super exciting. And then, right, and then you think about the use of those agricultural products across the suite of products, right? So let's just say we have tomatoes and we grow tomatoes and those tomatoes are consumed in food in some kind of food products, whether it's canned tomatoes for pizza sauce or, uh, a nice, you know, a nice, uh, you know, salsa, whatever you want to do. And then you have this stock, you know, uh, tomatoes are grown on stock. Well, what do you do with that stock? There's a ton of stock. It's, it's a long form fiber. We can actually use that tomato stock to grow packaging mm. and to build make packaging with. Right. Mm. So you, you start finding all these connections, data connections that didn't exist before. And that's where it gets really powerful and in, impactful, you know, and, and that gets us, obviously it gets me very excited, but it's, it's, um, it's a, it's a long-term play, but it's the way you have to be thinking about these systems. Our, our, um, our CEO likes to talk about um, systems designing and building a company smart from the start 
in being a systems thinker, right? So, you know, um, and the reason he feels compelled to do that is because of climate change and the, and the urgency around that problem. So he's like, you know, Keely, we did. Amazon was built over 25 years. We don't have the luxury of that. We, we have to be designing and thinking about this company in a system systematic way, uh, deliberately from the start, because we have to address these problems immediately, mm. right? And so it's that sense of purpose and urgency, which is really a big part of, of the Zoom ethos. Uh, I have a question. I was speaking with a good friend of mine who uh, runs like a, I think a wholesaler distrib- distribution center in the Pacific Northwest. And mm-hmm. uh, I asked him, you know, if they were to have something like Zoom, what, so I guess maybe for you is when you go into a wholesale like that or into a restaurant, no matter what it is, if they're already using a predictive tracking service, would they have to switch to yours or could they feed that data and maybe do like an, uh, you know, just crowdsource data into, into your software to then provide them with uh, some solutions? Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on who it is and what they're doing. I mean, I, I don't think um, the predict, predictive analytics that exist today is all that is all that effective, or we'd be solving a lot of these problems already. Yeah, true. So, um, you know, the average um, produce goes through twelve steps before it actually gets to the consumer. I didn't know that. And the reason that and the reason that is is because there's not shared information, right? Mm. So it's super disaggregated. So, so. Um, you know, someone might have predicted analytics within their like unique little ecosystem, but no one's looking at this holistically and really understanding all the big pieces in a way that's going to have an impact at scale. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're setting out to do. A holistic approach to the food supply and distribution system. Interesting. Okay. All right, Keely. I'm interested. Uh, I, I was uh, looking at some stats earlier today, and the, you mentioned 2030. 2030 is when the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals uh, are, are set uh, or due, I guess. Yeah. Um, and going on their website, uh, they said, I think it was, let me, do I have this stat right? Yeah, 815 million people don't know where the next food or the next meal is coming. Yeah. Um, and 20% of that 18, 815 million are in urban areas. Yeah. Um, where do you see Zoom's role uh, in that food insecurity issue? Um, it's funny you ask. Like, uh, it's not funny you ask. It's terribly sad that you ask. But um, um, I guess it's appropriate that you're asking. So, what ultimately, interestingly enough, what ultimately motivated our uh, our founder was this food insecurity and political security issue. Mm. So, uh, and a lot of it was driven. Um, not uh, by hunger, but hunger is going to be the, the, the hunger stats you're looking at today are going to pale in comparison to tomorrow because of climate change. Right. So if you think about um, so if you think about the, 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 the crisis on, on the United States southern border today, a lot of that's being driven by food insecurity issues in the, in the highlands of Central America. Arab Spring. Right. Was driven in large part and in, in some parts, at least by um, a, a spike in wheat prices. Right. So we're already seeing massive amounts of exodus and people movement and political insecurity driven by hunger and food issues. Right. And climate is only going to exacerbate that issue. Um, right. And, and you know, if you, if, I mean, I, I can't even can't even remember off the top of my head. But if you look at like something like one hundred and fifty million people are going to be put at risk of being uh, being put out of their homes. And, and by the way, and not, not in rural areas, in urban areas like Jakarta and other places within the next 10 to 15 years because of climate change, that is so frightening, right? 
you know, I think, I think at one point there was like, I think in world war two, there was like 10 million people that were displaced. That number is going to look nothing. It's going to pale in comparison to what we're going to see around climate change. So this hunger food, food security and political security issue is one that I think is, I actually think it's going to be the ultimate driver of the world addressing climate change, not food, uh, not, not food, not, uh, not fixing the environment or saving mother earth, which in, it, in itself is a good enough reason, but I think it's going to be these other major political drivers. I just hope that we get ahead of it quickly enough with real political, not just like tech solutions to help address it, but real political solutions, because when it hits, it's going to be, it's going to be so really, it's going to be really sad. There's going to be so many unfortunate people that are going to be struggling and starving and there's going to be war and, and, and really horrible things happening. And, and, you know, I don't want to be a downer. I think it's just the reality of what we're facing. Um, but I'm also really optimistic. You know, I think humanity has faced really dark times before, right? Um, you know, pre-enlightenment, they were pretty dark times, right? We've all seen, we've all seen movies and shows about what the world and read books about what life was like pre-enlightenment. And I think we're, my hope is that we're we're kind of coming into this new enlightenment period where we're we're putting you know the environment at the forefront because we're understanding the social implications of it. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. So what, um, maybe cross sector partnerships or what like government intervention, like would, um, incentivize, you know, your industry to, you know, really produce these sustainable foods and what's like the government's role in this? Yeah. I mean, that's a good question. I, I, um, there's a ton of levers that the government could, could use to, to, to make change. I'm not really hopeful. Uh, or right now optimistic about government being a solution. I'm, I'm, um, I, I think the private industry is going to step up in a big way on this because I think there's a ton, in the absence of government intervention, I think that there's tons of um, you know, private opportunity to address this. Um, certainly um, putting a price on, ca- on carbon across multiple industries would be helpful. You know, we've, we've seen it a little bit in energy generation and transportation, but I think we're going to have to do it across um, a wider swath of industries to like put a true um, you know, to truly capture some of those shadow costs that exist in the marketplace, whether they're health related or environmentally related, um, or as we talk about geopolitical, um, and national security related. Um, you know, it's interesting, um, HR McMaster, who's a, you know, a four-star general, he's actually one of our advisors to our company came and spoke to us and he, he talked about this. He said, you know, the military gets this, the military understands, you know, he, he's trying to convince the military that they're actually going to be in the future. The military is actually going to be in the food growing industry. Cause that's going to be the single greatest threat to their, um, to, uh, to national security, not just for the United States, but across the globe, right. It's food insecurity. He's like, you know, um, the military leadership gets it. They understand. So they're studying this. They're, they're really looking hard around food insecurity issues. So, you know, that's one way where the government actually could step in is, as as be in it being driven by national security. But, you know, in, in a place like the United States where we have the resources to do that, that's fortunate. Um, but in other places, you know, there's going to have to be other types of solutions. Um, and it's interesting because food waste is different in the United States than it is in say like, like sub-Saharan Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, most of the food waste occurs, um, either on, on, uh, on, on the farm or in transportation because they don't have great cold transportation. Right. So, but in the U S it's different. It's actually, most of the food waste is actually happening kind of further upstream pardon me, further downstream, it's happening more kind of at the restaurant, uh, grocery transportation and then consumer level. Cause we have it in abundance, right? Sadly. Um, whereas Africa and other, you know, developing, 
places um, have a totally different set of uh, uh, have a totally different set of problems and will require different policy solutions. Yeah, I think uh, you said a couple of good points too. It's like how climate change is impacting like this this food supply, yeah. uh, especially with all these droughts uh, in the Middle East. Especially, I think you'd mentioned 150 million. I think the number I had was like like 50. Maybe it was 150 million refugees by the year 2050 um, due to war and conflict and, and food being a big part of that. People not yeah. being able to get their next meal. Yeah. Um, and when you think of history, say, oh, the climate's always been changing. Yes, it has. But this enhances it. Um, the one, you know, Part of being on the podcast and thinking about capitalism as a system and how it can evolve and update. Sometimes I like to be a conspirator, Keely. And, uh, you know, the, the conspirator I have here is um, there was a there's an ancient city in Mexico I studied a while back in school and it was called uh, Teotihuacan. And this is the civilization in Mexico. It's one of the largest cities in Mexico, uh, 300, 500 AD, and had a ton of people in there. No one knows what happened to it. To this day, no one really knows. But um, there's a ton of uh, buildings there. It seems like there could have been an uprising. But the one consistency every single um, uh, archaeologist have found is that they cut down all the trees in the area to build and manifest all the, the buildings and create all these fires. So without the trees... And without the agriculture, they were not able to sustain that population, thus making everything, everyone flee and migrate to different oh. cities. It's happened before, people. It's happened. It's happening again. It's happening right now. And yeah. I think you also said, you know, until it until it hits, I don't know if we're ever going to notice if something hits. It's just it's already happening. It's just it's we live in a bubble. Yeah, it's very. It's we're the very frog, com- it's the frog, frog boiling uh, metaphor, right? What's that? You never heard Al Gore's, mm-hmm. uh, Vice President Gore's frog uh, metaphor? Like, you know, a, you, a frog doesn't know it's boiling because the, the temperature is rising. Oh, right. Right. And, and, and they're in a pot and they, and they ultimately, you know, succumb to, to the heat, but they don't know it because it's happening in such um, kind of like minor uh, steps that you don't know it until it's too late. And I, I definitely think we're, we're headed there. But, I, I, you know, I, I really am optimistic. Like, I, I think the human capacity for addressing problems is, is, is none like, is like, is like none other. Is there going to be pain? Uh, of course there's going to be pain. And, and totally. I, and I hope we can minimize that across the globe, but you know, I really do believe that there are going to be solutions. And I think they, again, you know, they're going to be driven in large part by technology and technology gets a bad rub, right? It, 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 it you know, it's, I don't think we as an industry have done a great job of kind of like selling its, its virtues because I think some, some other ways, but I mean, you know, tech can really be part of the solution if we're smart. And, you know, you know, maybe the folks in Tiwa, Tiwa Khan, they've, they, maybe, they, maybe they found another tech solution that took them to another place. You, you never know. And, you know, I was a Latin American studies major at, at undergrad at, at Cal Berkeley. So I, I, uh, I want to look more into that. That sounds really cool. Uh, well, well, Keith, I think uh, you hit on a great point. This is why I always like to ask pe- people, especially in tech, you know, is it a tool or a weapon? Uh, and, and how, and, and so, the basis of that premise every single time I ask that question, you just get down to, well, it's a leadership problem. How is it going to be used? And it seems yeah. like, you know, your organization is, is, uh, realizes that problem and, and is addressing those needs. So the last question I have for you, Keely, is uh, what is your definition of a real leader? Um, a real leader to me is someone who's both, both authentic uh, to have the effect that they're looking for on people. But ultimately it's someone that helps people 
society organizations reach their full potential. I like that. And, and uh, you know, that's how I try to, I try, I try to live every day. I can't say that I'm great at it every day, but, um, and everyone has their own kind of mechanism for that. You know, I, I happen to be in the business of kind of selling ideas, right? I mean, that's kind of what I do in my job. So I try to inspire people to reach their full potential with really meaningful and easy to understand ideas and, um, and, you know, try to come at it honestly and, and, you know, but other leaders have a different way of doing it. But I think if, if everyone, if everyone spent their time thinking about how to make, help others around them reach their full potential, imagine, imagine what kind of society we'd be in. Oh uh, yeah, exactly. Well, Keely, I uh, appreciate your time coming here on the, uh, the real years podcast. Talked about a lot today. Talked about, uh, the systems of capitalism, how zooms, uh, playing a, a vital role in that increasing efficiency, supply distribution. Uh, talked about my meatball shop today. I might even open one up in La Jolla. Who knows? Uh, it seems like it's pretty possible and, and uh, eventual, uh, with, uh, with zoom out here, um, helping people out. And then lastly, Keely talked a little about, uh, government intervention and policy and how climate change is uh, disrupting the food industry, how military leaders are taking a stance on this to supply their own soldiers. Soldiers. Then lastly, followed up with your definition of a real, uh, of, a, of a real leader. Any last words today, Keely? No, I'm just really honored to be a part of this. Kevin, I thought you asked some great questions and uh, I love uh, I, I love the Real Leaders uh, media platform. I think you guys are doing a great job and um, you know, thanks for continuing the conversation about what leadership looks like. Well, we appreciate you. All right, everybody, for Keely Wax, uh, the VP of Communications and Impact at Zoom, I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there, bring people together, and always keep it real, folks.